Welcome to the Beyond the Pearls podcast, based on the Morning Report series from Elsevier. This podcast has been adapted for audio in collaboration with series editor Dr. Raj Dasgupta, as well as the volume editor for each book. Each episode features an in-depth case dissection format and aims to deliver practical, concise, and easy-to-digest information. And now, here's today's episode. Hello, and everyone out there. So, hey, I'm Dr. Raj, and I'm super excited to get started with this. You know, I always feel like when I think about what are one of the toughest lectures to give, it's got to be mechanical ventilation, you know. Um, for me, who took the, the critical care boards twice, I remember when it was my turn to do mechanical ventilation. Um, yeah, I kind of, I overstudied it. I mean, I was always worried they're gonna give me some ventilator mode that I never heard about or show me a screenshot of the ventilator. And I'm like, what is going on? So I really wanted to do a talk that will make you feel calm. I wanted you to realize that there is a talk out there that will kind of bring it all together. So I spent a lot of time doing this talk and we're gonna divide it into two separate pieces. Um, I totally skipped over who I am. I'm here at the University of Southern California. I'm an associate professor of clinical medicine. Now I'm quadruple board certified in pulmonary critical care, sleep and internal medicine. And the title of my talk, and I, I gave it a lot of thought, but, you know, I, I kind of stole this title, Mechanical Ventilation Made Ridiculously Simple. And that's what I wanted to do. I wanted to make this talk enjoyable. I wanted for everyone listening to get the score they want on the board exams and also to take the information and to be able to go to their ventilator and their ICU and apply the knowledge. So what is going to be our outline for these two days? Well, it seems that no matter what, when you have a ventilator talk, you always got to talk about some basic physiology. And in kind of uh, you know getting a feel of all the different talks out there, some of the criticisms were there was too much physiology or it wasn't relevant enough. So what I wanted to do is talk about board relevant physiology, you know. So we're going to talk about things that they'll ask you on your board exams and help you really understand how do we breathe and, of course, what happens when we're put on positive pressure. Um, I did want to talk a little about oxygen delivery devices. Why is because I feel when someone's in respiratory failure, most of the time we just don't intubate them and put them on the vent. There's usually this progression, right? Give them some supplemental oxygen, put them on non-invasive, and then maybe some invasive mechanical ventilation. So I wanted to, you know, kind of put some things not only have I seen on the boards, but things that my own residents and fellows have been asking me. And of course, we'll get to invasive positive pressure ventilation. And today, we're definitely going to cover some traditional modes, some dual control modes, some advanced modes. And we're definitely going to talk about the three T's, you know. And this is not something I just made up. I mean, looking at all these different vent talks out there, I do love the three T's, the trigger, the target, and the termination. And we're going to use these three T's when we go through all these traditional modes and these dual control and advanced modes. And then tomorrow we'll pick up with things like, you know, peak and plateau pressures, driving pressures, auto peep, what happens when you're not synchronized with the ventilator, and of course, some troubleshooting itself. So let's get started with mechanical ventilation. Why did I put this here? Why is this going to be my opening slide? Because I wanted to kind of lay the groundwork. So number one, like I said earlier, I mean, I took the critical care boards twice already, and, you know, 
many people get kind of worried about the ventilator questions. And remember, whether you're a pulmonologist out there watching this, that not all pulmonary doctors actually work in the ICU, especially as you get older. So they definitely wanted to make the questions fair for everyone. Now, if you're taking this as a critical care board exam, you know, not all critical care doctors are pulmonologists. And in fact, some of my favorite critical care doctors are nephro critical care, infectious disease, critical care, or maybe they're surgeons or anesthesiologists. So the answer is, is that they're not going to give you those extraordinary hard ventilator questions you'll never see. So, you know, the vent questions on the boards are going to be a lot easier than you think. Now, why did I put these two coins over here? Is because when we talk about, you know, um, modes of ventilation, there really are only two basic modes that we're going to be talking about. It's going to be volume and it's going to be pressure. Just like there's heads and tails, there's volume and pressure. But both, you know, the heads and tails are part of the same coin, just like both volume and pressure are about the same thing, which is helping the patient be synchronized with the vent, helping the patient be comfortable on the vent. And then whether we do that through more volume or whether we do that through pressure, we shouldn't argue with each other, they're both trying to accomplish the same thing. So when volume is going to be the independent variable, then pressure is dependent. When we're playing with the pressure that's independent, then the volume becomes dependent. So there are two sides of the same coin when we're trying to help people and talking about mechanical ventilation. Now, why did I put this Coca-Cola Classic down here. It's, it's not because I like it. Actually, I'm, a, I'm more of a diet Dr. Pepper person myself. But I put this here because it's a brand name. And I don't want people who are taking their board exams to get bogged down with the different names. So what would be kind of an example of that? Well, is it PRVC, Pressure Regulated Volume Control, or is it VC Plus? Now, they all mean the same things, but there's different ventilator names and brands and modes, and it does get confusing. So on the board exams, it's all about understanding the concepts of what you're trying to accomplish. What's the dependent variable? What's the independent variable? What is the target, the trigger? What's going to cycle the ventilator? Not memorizing the names itself. So, you know, I think clinically, it's going to be very important that when we talk about your hospital, you should know the ventilators that you're going to be using. So, for example, here at USC, we have three different hospitals. We have the county, we have the private, we have the Norris Cancer Center, and they all use different ventilators. And if I wanted to find out how to do an inspiratory hold, sometimes I just don't know where that button is, depending upon what ventilator we're going to be using. So don't get bogged down by the names and the button pushing, understanding the concepts. And the last thing over here, now this symbol over here, I don't know if anyone knows what this is, is a what? A Bitcoin, and I think it's it may be worth something. And that's the whole purpose is because during this, there are going to be some modes that you can be like, what are you talking about? There are things like VAPS, which is going to be that volume assured pressure support, or NAVA, nearly adjusted ventilation. And, and do we use it? Not really. Why do we use it? I, I kind of guess to help the patient, but that's the purpose is trying to help the patient be more synchronized. So it is worth knowing it. Just like a Bitcoin, I mean, it's 
kind of worth something. I don't know what it really is worth, but it's because it's trying to help you get money, but we just don't know its value yet. So I thought that's going to be a nice little symbol right here, talking about some of the modes that we just don't commonly use. So with that being said, I mean, I guess we're ready to, to kind of jump in. So this is going to be those laws of mechanical ventilation, some of the physiology. What did I promise you? I'm going to make it relevant for the boards. So when we talk about these laws, you know, starting off on the top left, Boyle's law. Well, before we could jump into positive pressure ventilation, well, the question is, I mean, how do we normally breathe? And we breathe through negative pressure ventilation. So what does that mean? We have these wonderful pleura and intrapleural space is always negative. So when I take a breath in, my brainstem sends a signal down the phrenic nerve that innervates the diaphragm, the diaphragm moves down, it increases the AP diameter. When that happens, intrapleural pressure becomes more negative. And as intrapleural pressure becomes more negative, it opens everything up intrathoracically inside the thorax. What's inside my thorax? Well, the esophagus, the heart, and of course, the lungs. And the lungs are made up of all these tiny sacs called alveoli. So what happens as intrapleural pressure becomes more negative, these alveoli increased in size. So Boyle's law kicks in. What does it uh, mainly say is that as the volume increases, pressure decreases. And as intraabular pressure becomes negative, it's negative relative to atmospheric pressure. So air is going to flow into the lungs, into the alveoli. Boyle's law. Now, what happens when we want to take a breath out? So remember, when we talk about expiration, it's a very, very passive process. Can it be active? Sure, you don't want it to be an active process. You don't want to obstruct the lung disease, but it's usually a passive process. So how do we get air out of the lungs? Well, we're going to talk about Hooke's Law. So what is Hooke's Law? We'll definitely think about that if the stretch, the stress increases, the force of recoil increases. So in a normally functioning person like you and me, not someone with emphysema, there's a certain point at that end of inspiration where the lung's going to want to recoil. And of course, the diaphragm goes up, decreased AP diameter, intrapleural pressure becomes less negative, and everything inside the thorax, including the alveoli, tend to shrink. And now Boyle's Law kicks in again as the volume decreases, pressure increases, and now intraalveolar pressure is the little more positive and atmospheric pressure, air flows out of the lungs. So now we go to compliance. Now compliance is important to understand whether we're talking about negative pressure ventilation or positive. And I really just wanted to summarize what compliance means, which is going to be, well, if you get a huge change in the volume after just a little pressure, meaning a little change in pressure gives you a huge change in volume, that means you're very compliant. Contrary to that, if you need huge changes in pressure for just a little change in volume, that means you're non-compliant. So understanding compliance is important just as what's right below this elasticity. And, you know, many individuals think that compliance and elasticity are basically the same thing, which is wrong. So I would say simply put, compliance and elasticity are inversely related. The more compliant you tend to be, the less elasticity you are. So it's the opposite of what compliance is going to be. So these are going to be some of the basics when we talk about, you know, both negative and positive pressure ventilation.
So let's take these laws and apply it to the basics and then go from there. So I put this here as kind of my, my last little summary of how do we normally breathe. When we look at this, the top box is tidal volume. The second one is intrapleural pressure. The third is flow. And remember everyone, flow is always gonna be volume over time. And we're gonna be using the terminology flow a lot during this lecture, volume over time. And this is gonna be alveolar pressure. So when we take a breath in during negative pressure ventilation, intrapleural pressure becomes more what? Negative. It opens everything up intrathoracically, including the alveoli. And therefore, Boyle's law kicks in as volume increases, pressure what? decreases. You could see that's going to be negative over here. Therefore, the positive atmospheric pressure flows into the negative alveoli. And all that volume is going into the lung. So in, during inspiration, tidal volume increases. And then, of course, when you're taking a breath out, most of the time it's going to be very passive. The, what's going to happen is the diaphragm is going to move up, decrease AP diameter, Hook's long is going to kick in a little bit. So what happens, the alveoli are going to shrink. And when the alveoli shrink, that means as the volume decreases, the pressure is going to increase a little bit more than atmospheric pressure. Therefore, air is going to flow out into the atmosphere. And what's going to happen if you're blowing out the air, volume is going to decrease. So when we talk about negative pressure ventilation, you know, there is such a thing as negative pressure ventilators. So I put this picture over here, and this is going to be the classic iron lung. You know, I didn't realize this, but um, did anyone hear that there are some cases of polio nowadays? Like, go figure. You know, I thought we eradicated this, and now there's some cases of polio out there. And so, you know, of course, one of the things that polio we worry about is going to be, you know, the worst is going to be the the, the neuromuscular complications, the paralysis, affecting the diaphragm, the phrenic nerve. So this is gonna be the iron lung. And on the bottom of this black and white picture, you can kind of see that drum sucking in and out. And I put this cartoon here to kind of show what a negative pressure ventilator does, is that you see this drum, is that when it kind of pulls it open, is that it actually creates some negative pressure. So what happens? Intrapleural pressure becomes more negative and eventually air is gonna flow into the alveoli. And then when that drum closes, what happens? The opposite, and air is gonna flow out of the lung. So there are such a thing as negative pressure ventilators. We just don't commonly use them. But what are we gonna be talking about today is gonna be in the top positive pressure ventilation. Now, I kind of took this image here from literally a USMLE class because they're actually teaching positive pressure ventilation at the med school level. Go figure. So this is going to be a cis control mechanical ventilation. And when I look at this, already I could tell they're assuming people are going to look at this and say it's VAC, volume assist control. How do I know that? On the y-axis, this is pressure. And look how pressure is rising, kind of in that curved fashion. So that tells me that pressure is going to be the dependent variable. The independent variable is going to be volume. So you're going to give a set flow, a set volume, and pressure is going to be dependent upon that volume. So these are going to be the assisted brass over here. How do I know they're assisted? They're going to be triggered. These are going to be the controlled breaths. They're going to be initiated by the ventilator itself. These are going to be patient-triggered breaths. And in this diagram, they're showing something called PEEP, 
And what is PEEP? Positive and expiratory pressure. This has a PEEP of five. So this shows that when we actually have pressure left in the lungs at the end of expiration, you're never gonna go down to this point here, which is gonna be the FRC, the functional residual capacity. So one thing I wanted to mention and spend some time talking about is gonna be combining the pulmonary effects of positive pressure mechanical ventilation with the cardiac system. And I've seen these questions on the critical care boards over and over again. So they're not mutually exclusive. And I think they're gonna be very fair game because many people taking the critical care boards are gonna be treating patients with sepsis, you know, with heart failure, and you're gonna put them on positive pressure and mechanical ventilation, and you wanna know what's gonna happen hemodynamically. So let's do a question. So what are the pulmonary effects of positive pressure ventilation? Is it gonna A, increase physiological dead space, B, decrease physiological shunting, C, decrease physiological dead space, D, increase physiological shunting, or E, both A and B. So, you know, we're not really set up here to pull the class, but, you know, why did I put this question here is for one thing. We all could use a little memory jogger of what is dead space and what is shunting. So as a reminder, so dead space, the way I think about it, will be when there's, you know, wonderful ventilation, but there's no perfusion to these alveoli. So what would be a classic example of dead space physiology? That's right, like a pulmonary embolism, you know? When we talk about shunt physiology, well, that's problems where you have poor ventilation, but wonderful perfusion. What's a classic example of that? Atelectasis, ARDS. So the question is asking you, well, what happens if you put me and you on positive pressure, like a normal person? So what happens to the alveoli when you're on positive pressure ventilation? It's going to what? Distend. And what's going to be surrounding all these alveoli are capillaries. So when these alveoli are squishing the capillaries, you're increasing the what? The dead space, very good. And because these alveoli are distending, you're increasing the surface area, what happens to shunting? Yeah, shunting improves. So you're gonna decrease the shunting and increase the dead space when you put someone like me on positive pressure ventilation. So the answer here is gonna be what? E, both A and B. So I put a little picture here for those of you who just, you know, wanted to, are better thinkers when you see a diagram or see a, a, a picture. So over here is classic when we talk, someone who comes in with shunt physiology. The blue is gonna be the airway and look how there's a blockage here, this little black circle, no air coming into the alveoli, but look at the venous blood, it is wonderful. So good perfusion, but no ventilation, shunt physiology. On the far right, you can see that this is someone who comes here who has wonderful airways. You can see the blue coming in here. So not a problem with the airway aspect, but look at the venous blood. There's a clot, just like someone who has a what? Pulmonary embolism. This is gonna be dead space physiology. So this is gonna be showing in a picture what we just talked about and explaining the answer. What are the hemodynamic effects of positive pressure ventilation on a euvolemic patient? So I think the key word here is going to be euvolemic, people like you 
and people like me? What happens when I put them on positive pressure? So we could, is it gonna be A, decreased venous return, B, reduced right ventricular output, C, reduced left ventricular output, D, both A and B, or E, all of the above. So we could work it out in two different ways. When you put me on positive pressure ventilation, what happens to intrathoracic pressure? Yeah, it increases. What happens to venous return? It decreases. Therefore, less blood flow goes into the right ventricle. Therefore, right ventricular cardiac output decreases, less blood in the left ventricle, and left ventricular output goes down. So that could be one train of thought. Therefore, the answer would be E. At the same token, you could say that, hey, when you're on positive pressure, what's going to happen is that you're going to squish these pulmonary capillaries so all the blood is going to back up from the pulmonary artery therefore not only is there a decrease in venous return that the right ventricle has to work harder to pump blood out of the right ventricle into the pulmonary artery and what happens is that the right ventricular septum kind of bows into the left ventricle and because of that you don't get diastole relaxation of the left ventricle and cardiac output would go down. So these are two different ways to get to the same answer. So the answer here is going to be what? E. Now, why did I put this here? I put this here because if when we talk about, you know, putting individuals on positive airway pressure, whether it be invasive or non-invasive, you know, we tend to use non-invasive positive airway pressure in patients who come in with heart failure. And why does it improve it? Well, number one, it's going to help out with that work of breathing. But number two, I wanted to mention that when you're on positive pressure ventilation, not only does it decrease the preload, it also decreases the afterload. And many of you will be asking me how and why. And I'll briefly just mention, well, it goes because of wall tension. And we talk about wall tension of the left ventricle, we call that the law of Laplace. So remember, when you're breathing like me right now, that's negative pressure ventilation, intrapleural pressure becomes more negative. It opens everything up intrathoracically. So the walls of the left ventricle are going to get pulled outwards. So what happens is the law of Laplace, when you think of that classic cylinder, the area that has the greatest diameter in a cylinder it's going to have the greatest wall tension to pull and pushes outward so if you have wall tension pushing outward it's hard for the left ventricle to what contract it's kind of like having an increased afterload but when you're on positive pressure ventilation well next thing you know there's not going to be that force pulling the left ventricle walls outward so you have less wall tension it's kind of like decreasing the afterload so being on positive pressure decreases preload and decreases afterload, but we see more clinical benefit of this when you're in a hypervolemic state. So when you're in a hypervolemic state, you may actually get an increase in cardiac output and you may have a slight improvement in blood pressure or it'll stay the same. But if you put me right now for no reason on positive pressure, same concepts, but you will see more of a decrease in cardiac output and decrease in blood pressure. So it's very important to of thinking about why does this benefit people on heart failure is because of their hypervolemic state. So how does PEEP affect a pulmonary artery catheter and central venous pressure uh, values? Well, you can think of the anatomy in itself is that if you are distending the alveoli, whether it be from positive pressure or the positive and expiratory pressure peep, well, everything's going to back up 
into those pulmonary arteries, and that's where these catheters tend to sit. So the pulmonary artery catheter pressure, if you have a swan gans in there, it's going to be what? Elevated. The answer is increased. And here's a diagram for those who like diagrams a little better. Here's your right atrium. In your right atrium, you're going to have entrance of the, both the superior and inferior vena cava. Blood's going to go into the right ventricle. And then you can see there's a Swan-Gans catheter placed in here from the right ventricle. It's going to leave the pulmonic valve into the right ventricular outflow track. And this will eventually lead into the pulmonary capillaries. So if you have a lot of PEEP, pressure is going to back up, hit this balloon, and the pulmonary capillary wedge pressure is going to be elevated. So the question becomes, at what point in a respiratory cycle would you measure the pulmonary capillary wedge pressure or the central venous pressure if a patient's on positive pressure ventilation? And the choices are, would you do it to get the most accurate value at the end of inspiration, the end of expiration, somewhere in between inspiration and expiration, or you know what, the truth is, it really doesn't matter. Well, it's a board question, so I think it's going to matter a little bit. So the answer is, you want to do it when the alveoli are the least distended, pushing on those capillaries. So I would do it at the end of what? Expiration. Very good. Very good. With that being said, kind of let's have a couple things about mechanical ventilators in general. So, you know, when people are in the ICU, you know, one of my pet peeves is when the family asks, you know, us, how is my, my loved one doing? And you're like, well, they're, they're doing good. They're stable. Remember, just being on mechanical ventilation is a form of life support. So especially during these COVID times, you know, I know it's always good to be positive and people need to hear positive things. But, um, you know, when you're on mechanical ventilation, it is a form of life support. And, you know, the ventilator takes over the work of breathing when you can't do it on your own. And why do we do it? If you have low oxygen levels, we talked about what does positive pressure do? It distends the alveoli, giving it more surface area to help out with diffusion of oxygen. It blows off the carbon dioxide, it helps out when you are short of breath. And of course, it protects the airway. And of course, when many individuals are intubated in the emergency department, it's because of they have a low GCS score, Glasgow Coma Scale score, or maybe sometimes they over-sedated or, or you can't feel they can protect their airway. So we do uh, use mechanical ventilation in these cases also. So before we jump into mechanical ventilation, the one last thing I wanted to bring up is talking about oxygen. And like I said earlier, I wanted to bring this up because it's important, it's on the board exams. And remember in the train of thought, most of the time, we kind of progress from oxygen to non-invasive to invasive. Not all the time, but some of the times. So what did I put here is that, you know, the question became that one day when I was on rounds, you know, one of my residents was asking me, how much oxygen is the patient on when they're on two liters of nasal cannula? And it's important that everyone realizes that flow and FiO2 are just not the same thing. So anytime you put someone on, an, an, a, a, on nasal cannula, you are thinking about two things. We are thinking about what's the flow rate, which is gonna be the volume per period of time. And we're thinking about how much oxygen they're going to be on, which is the FiO2, the percent of oxygen that they're going to be inhaling. So the question becomes, well, how do you calculate FiO2 from the flow rate? Or I could just ask right now, everyone who's listening, hey, if you're on two liters of nasal cannula, how much FiO2 are you going to be on? 
And the answer is, well, somewhere around like 28%. And where did I get this number? Well, it's not an exact science, but we kind of use this ballpark as a rough estimate of the FiO2. So usually our FiO2 is 21%. Don't get me wrong, it's 21%. But just to keep it simple for everyone else, we just say 20%. And we say that for every one liter flow, it's kind of like adding 4%. So if you're on one liter, I add 4% to 20, it's 24%. If you're on two liters, I add eight to the 20, that's 28% and so forth and so on. So this is gonna give you a rough estimate of what your FiO2 is going to be. And I really put this here because now in the days of COVID, you know, we talk about them patients being on low flow and high flow and I wanted people to realize that flow and FiO2 are just not the same thing. So, I put this here because there are some pulmonologists who are going to be listening to this. Uh, how long does a E-tank, a size E oxygen cylinder last if the patient is using continuous oxygen flow at two liters per minute? And why did I put this here is because, you know, nowadays, you know, when you qualify for home oxygen, you get a home concentrator, whether it's going to be a five liter or a 10 liter, and they'll give you some backup tanks or people want to be portable and they get these portable tanks. And of course, you want to know, well, how much oxygen do you require to give you a rough estimate of, I mean, how long do they have when they use these e-tanks, assuming they don't have a portable oxygen concentrator? And the answer is going to be, around maybe five, pushing it maybe six hours, five to six hours. So these E-tanks, what we're talking about, they're around three feet tall, they weigh around, they weigh around eight pounds, and they hold uh, 660 liters of oxygen in, in one of these E-cylinders. So if you use, someone is using two liters per minute, you would assume that in 60 minutes, one hour, that'd be 120 liters. 120 liters into 660 is going to give you around five hours. So just kind of a ballpark of how long a patient can last when they're uh, having an e-tank at two liters per minute. And of course, the higher liter flow, the uh, quicker you're going to bleed through that tank. And I just wanted to mention why do we have different oxygen delivery devices is because of that flow. So we mentioned about nasal cannula, the flow is usually around one to six liters per minute. You can adjust, this gives you a rough estimate of the FiO2. A face mask will give you around five to 10 liters per minute. A face tent, you know, will give you around five to 15 liters per minute. And of course, there are things like an oximizer over here to help out with the flow. Venturi mask, which we don't use as much often, but really controls the FiO2 used historically with COPD patients, gives you around two to 15 liters per minute. Non-rebreather gives you around 10 to 15 liters per minute. And of course, I wanted to mention high flow. And when we talk about high flow, you could really appreciate what the flow is now compared to a nasal cannula, talking about 30, 40, up to 60 liters per minute when we talk about that flow. And of course, the FiO2 in this case can go up to a very high amount of about 100%. Thank you for listening to the Beyond the Pearls podcast from Inside the Boards. This podcast is executive produced by Christopher Brightigan and Dr. Patrick Beeman. This podcast is intended for educational purposes only and is not medical advice. Ours longa Vita Brevis.